We say it every week. Come on, we believe that Jesus, come on, he is the hope of the world, which means, man, this world offers lots of solutions, but we believe that Jesus, he's the answer. So whoever you are, whatever you're going through, your issue, your hurt, your heartache, or your habit, if you'll allow Jesus into your life, it'll be the greatest decision, come on, that you've ever made. How many people know that's true? Well, listen, who's ready for the word today? Come on, am I excited? You've not even heard what I had to say yet. You might not be excited. (laughs) Hey, how many people here are Rocky fans? Do we have any Rocky Balboa fans in the house? If you are not aware who Rocky is, you're probably young, probably a Gen Z or millennial, and I feel sorry for you that you have missed the incredible talent of Sylvester Stallone playing Rocky Balboa. Uh, Sylvester Stallone has played this part literally since 1978. That's when Rocky I came out. There has since been a Rocky II, Rocky III, Rocky IV, Rocky V, Rocky VI, and now Creed I, Creed II, and good news is Creed III is coming out. I swear Sylvester Stallone is a lot like Pastor Ronnie Pogue. He just keeps getting better with age. <laughs> so it's, a, it's really a great story. If you've never seen it, I would encourage you. It's one of the all-time epic stories of this guy by the name, again, of Rocky Balboa, who is washed up. He's kind of beyond the age. Nobody believes in him. But he decides to gamble on himself. He decides to believe in himself. He trains hard. It's one of the most inspiring, motivating movies of all time. In this nobody, Rocky Balboa gets a title shot against the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed, and Rocky one ends with a draw. Rocky two comes out. They go back head to head. He trains harder, works harder, gets in the ring one more time, and he defeats the heavyweight champion to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Rocky Balboa, and people lose their mind. But my favorite of the series was Rocky III. Rocky III gave us two of the incredible greats. First of all, it gave us what I would say is an underrepresented amount of screen time from the great Mr. T, a pity the fool. If you don't know who Mr. T is, I just feel sorry for you. Had Mr. T as uh, the antagonist fighting against Rocky Balboa, And it gave us probably even better than Mr. T, as hard as that is to believe, it gave us one of the most inspiring, motivating songs of all time. If you will play this song when you're working out, it's a proven scientific fact. You will burn more calories. You will develop uh, muscles at a more rapid pace. The eye of the tiger. Oh, don't tell me you ain't all heard eye of the tiger. I mean, it's just this incredible movie. But here's what I want you to know. All the movies are really good. But if you've never really watched the movie or movies, it's all one continuous story. If you just tuned in, you can catch some pretty good fight scenes. There's some pretty good content in the movies of Rocky. There's some really great concepts in the movies. Like there's something about motivation and there's something about drive. If you watch just bits and parts, you can be inspired yourself to run up the stairs in downtown Philadelphia. Like there's something about different parts and pieces But what you need to know is if you really watch not just one movie, but if you have a day or two to kill, if you watch the entire storyline, you get not just the content or the concepts, but you get the context. The context of the story of Rocky Balboa is really what's so inspiring that, again, this nobody who nobody believed in but himself, when you get through movies one and two, you get to movie three. And the reason movie three is so powerful is because what you find out is Rocky Balboa has lost the eye, the hunger to believe that he can fight and win. 
He's kind of, you know how it is, once you reach the goal, you take, the, you take your foot off the gas. He started kind of getting lethargic, kind of laying off of workouts. And here comes Clubber Lang, Mr. T's character, who wants a shot at the talent. Come on, fool, give me a shot at that title. And man, they're ready to go. But here's what you know is Rocky Balboa is afraid to fight Clubber Lang because he knows he's got the eye. He knows he's hungry to win like he once was. He's kind of washed up. He's lost faith in himself. And you watch the movie play out, and Apollo Creed trains Rocky Balboa to fight Clubber Lang. And at the end of the movie, he defeats him. But again, in order to really get the movie, in order to understand the power of the story, it's not enough to get the concepts or the content. You got to get the context of the whole story. The reason I share all that is because the Bible is a lot like that. Think about it. A lot of us, Lawrenceburg, Florence, maybe you grew up in church or spent time in Sunday school. Maybe you're even new to faith and you're just now kind of kicking the tires on the Bible. And a lot of us, what we do is we just kind of open up and start reading. And it's easy just to get a little bit of content. We read stories like David and Goliath or the crossing of the Red Sea. We catch bits and pieces here and there. And you show up on a Sunday morning and it's my job not just to give you the content, but to give you concepts to help you understand how do you apply what you read to your life? What does it look like to be a Christ follower? What does it really mean to live for Jesus? And while those things are great to have content and concepts, what I want to do for the next two weeks is I want to give all of us some context. For the next two weeks, we're going to pull back and we're going to get a 30,000 foot view. I'm going to give you a picture of scripture. I'm going to give you a overall view of the Bible from cover to to cover. So we're going to move fast. We're going to cover a lot of material. You might get lost, but if I do my job well, we're going to get to the end. And my hope is not just to give you information, but to help you experience transformation that you'll get a hunger for God's word to dig in deeper because we believe God's word is transformative and helps us move and grow as Christ followers. Who's with me? Come on. So the Bible, did you know the Bible is not a book? I know it looks like a book because it has two covers and pages in between, but the Bible is not a book. It's actually a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 different books that while they are independent, they are interconnected, which means together they tell one whole story. 66 books, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. You want to remember that? There's three letters in the word old, nine, nine letters in the word testament, 39. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. You know that because there's three letters in the word new, nine in the, in the word testament. Three times nine is 27. You're welcome. That's why I get paid the big bucks right there. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. And in all of that, all of these different books written from different perspectives by different authors, here's why it's such a profoundly powerful book is what connects all of it together is what some people have called the red thread of redemption. This incredible story that God has told from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, from opening page to last page, it is this continuous story of what our hero God is doing to never give up on you and I, but continually working to redeem us and to restore us and to connect us to a creator. The Bible is the story of what God has done to rescue humanity. Come on, is anybody thankful for God who never gives up? So today we're going to talk about the OT the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, the reason it's important, and first of all, what you need to know, the Old Testament ultimately is the story of the nation of Israel. And the reason it's important to us, because I'm not an Israelite, I would probably say there's maybe a couple Jewish people here if there's any. The reason it's important is because the Old Testament is the foundation. The New Testament is the fulfillment. The Old Testament is what God started to do. It's the foreshadowing. It's the picture of what he's working on. It's the thing that he's doing. The New Testament is the fulfillment of it. So the Old Testament, we're looking forward to what God's going to do. The New Testament, we're looking back at what God has done to save and rescue humanity. And so today, as we dig in, I've created eight icons to help us move. So again, we're going to move at a quick clip, a fast pace. Hang on. Don't take notes. Go back and watch it later. If you stop to write something, you'll miss the next thing. And I've worked hard to nail this. So I did. (laughs) Icon number one. This is where the story begins. Did anybody else hear the sound of an apple crunch in your ear when I showed you the picture? Anybody? Like, I need visual learners here. Let's go. So here's where the story starts. It starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God's story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the reason Genesis is so powerful, Genesis is the book of beginnings. And it tells us some really incredible things. In fact, if you've been paying attention and you've been here long enough, I have preached in the almost 10 years I've been here as a lead pastor of Faith Church, I have preached more on Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 by far more than anything else. Why? Because it is the foundation story of who God is, who we are, and God's story to rescue us. Here's what you find out in Genesis in the first three chapters. You find out that God's a creator God. You find out that God is a powerful God. He did all of this just by speaking it into existence. Not only is he a creator God and a powerful God, he's a good God. Everything God made, he looked at it and he said, mm, that's good. That's my translation. Mmm, that's good. He made you and I. He said, mmm, that's good. He's a good God with a good plan and a good purpose. We find out that he's a relational God. See, some people have the mindset that God we serve, that he's the clock winder, that he just wound up the clock of creation and backed up and disappeared. Our God is connected to us. He cares about us. He is our heavenly father, near and dear, not just far away. We find out that not only is God close to us, but we find out that God's a holy God. If you're looking for the Sunday morning version, that means he doesn't tolerate sin. If you're looking for the everyday version, that means he doesn't put up with crap. God is a holy, righteous God who cannot tolerate the presence of sin. And we find out the most incredible thing there is about the God we serve. We find out that he's gracious. Here's how we know it, because right after God creates everything, we find Adam and Eve in the midst of a perfect paradise. Everything is in order. God doesn't have a list of rules. He's got one rule. And even though he has one rule, a lot like you and I, a lot like you and I, Lawrenceburg, we want to live life on our own terms. So Adam and Eve thumb their nose at God and create cosmic rebellion. And they do life their own way. They violate God's law. And ultimately, God, they get separated from their creator because of sin. And you find that God, because here's the powerful picture that God gives us, is that God never gives up. The entire story of the Bible is found in this one word, atonement. Everybody say that word, atonement. Now let's say everybody say it. One, two, three. One more time. Lawrenceburg, help me out. One, two, three. Atonement. It's this word covering. You can look at it like this, at one. At one minute, atonement. What God did is we were separated from him because of our sin, and he did something to make us at one. What did he do? We found that God took an innocent animal, an innocent third party, and that animal lost his life 
so Adam and Eve could be covered. And he took the skin of that animal and dressed Adam and Eve. And it was a picture of ultimately what God was going to do. In Genesis 3.15, God gives us what's become known as the uh, Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Here's what God said when he cursed Satan for tempting Adam and Eve. He said, there's coming a time that I'm going to put enmity between you and her seed. It's important. He says, and when it happens, he says, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Spoiler alert, foreshadow Jesus saying there's coming a time I'm going to send my son and he's about to kick your rear end and I'm about to rescue humanity. Why? Because the book, the Bible is a book of God's rescue plan for humanity. And so you get through the first couple chapters and you get to this place where we're talking about, come on, the big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how they're known because God introduces himself to this man by the name of Abram. Abram doesn't know God, doesn't worship God, but God pursues him anyway. Listen, you didn't pursue God. You didn't find God. God pursued you and God found you. And God introduces himself to Abraham and he tells Abraham this. Abraham, listen, I know you're old and you can't have kids and you're married to a woman that can't bear kids. But good news is I'm bigger than a barren womb. And you're about to have not just a kid, but I'm going to bring a nation out of you. And that's exactly what happens. Abraham gives birth to a son by the name of Isaac. It was a fulfilled promise. I want you to know something. Every promise God makes, God is faithful to fulfill. Even in the face of impossibilities, we serve a God of impossibilities. With God, all things are possible. Come on, somebody. And Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob, he gives birth to 12 kids. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine the braces, Bill, for 12 boys? 12 kids? And those 12 kids ultimately become, each one, their own little family group, they become what's known as the 12 tribes of Israel. If you've ever heard it, that's who they are. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons, the second to the youngest, was this cat by the name of Joseph. If you don't know who Joseph is, Joseph is the guy, his dad gave him the Gucci coat, the members-only jacket. Y'all remember the member-only jacket? He gets a member-only jacket. His brothers hate him because his dad loves him so much. And so his brothers, the 11 of the 12, they decide they're going to kill him. And you think you have family problems. <laughs> they decide better. We're not going to kill him. They'd instead sell Joseph in the slavery. We're still in the book of Genesis, by the way. And I got 19 minutes to make it through another 38 books. Whew. I'm going to do it. So he gets, and you, and you find out that Ultimately, Joseph stays faithful to God, even though he's sold into slavery, even though he's accused of rape that he didn't commit. He gets thrown into the prison, and because he's faithful to trust God, God, recommend, God moves him from the prison to the palace. What I want you to know is if you'll trust God in the darkness, he will eventually bring you to the light. God will always fulfill his promises, and he will move you from the prison to the palace if you'll be faithful to him. And so Joseph gets delivered up. He gets to become the right-hand man of this guy by the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And all of a sudden, Joseph, man, he's, he's got all the cards in his hand. A famine breaks out. And underneath the recommendation of Joseph to Pharaoh, Pharaoh sets up food stores to feed the people who are hungry for the next seven years of famine. Well, you know who some of the hungry people are who come knocking? The 11 brothers who sold them into slavery. Now, Joseph is a much bigger man than I am because I'd be like, how's that, how's that food taste that you ain't eating? But Joseph is a picture of Christ who's gracious to his brothers who betrayed him. Christ is gracious to you even though you've betrayed him. And he starts feeding his brothers. And I don't know about you. I just came back from vacation. Anybody go on vacation, you don't want to come home from vacation. Like, I love you all, but I could have stayed. 
They go in and they move into Egypt. They got all the food they want. The sun is shining. It's lit. It's an amazing time. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months and months turn into years. They are happy, the nation of Israel, to live in Egypt. And while they're there, they experience the multiplication of a nation. And they just keep getting more and more and more until there's so many Israelites, Pharaoh feels threatened. And he's like, listen, if we keep letting them multiply, they're going to take over. So we can't let that happen. So he decides to make them slaves. He subjugates the nation of Israel. And now for 400 years, for 400 years, there they are serving in the land of Egypt. And you find that God sends Moses, the deliverer. You know what I'm doing? Moses had a little bit of a stuttering problem because one of the things you need to find out in Scripture is God uses broken people to do a whole work. God can, come on, God can make straight licks with crooked sticks. That's the God we serve. The theme you'll see over and over, if you're waiting to be perfect for God to use you, God will never use you because you'll never be perfect. We serve a perfect God who uses imperfect people to do a perfect work. And God raises up Moses to go into Egypt to kick Pharaoh's rear end. And bring God's people, the nation of Israel, out from Egypt. The goal is to get them into the promised land. We're talking about Exodus, the chains broken. They were delivered. I don't know if you're seeing the story as it unfolds because the whole Bible is the picture of God's redemptive story to deliver you and I. And the nation of Israel was underneath Pharaoh the same way we were underneath sin. And God sent them Moses, but God sent us Jesus. In the same way Moses brought them out of Israel, Jesus brought us out of sin and made the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Come on, is anybody thankful for that? And so you have the story of the Exodus. And this is where some of the things you know happen. It's in the book of Exodus where they're wandering in the wilderness and God meets them on Mount Sinai and gives them the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten commandments. God gives them the law. The chronological books, if you're going to read it as a history, it's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Leviticus is the law that God gives them because one of the things he tells them is you're going to need to continue to make sacrifices because you're going to continue to sin and you need atonement. Everybody say that word, atonement. He doesn't just give them the sacrificial system. He uses one of the 12 tribes, this guy by the name of Levi, and says your entire family, you're going to be the priests that make the sacrifices to give atonement for sin. He also gives them the picture of the tabernacle. Everybody say tabernacle. The tabernacle was a mobile church where God's presence was. Wherever the nation of Israel went, that's where the tabernacle was. God was with them. And you watch all that unfold, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land because that's what God said. And there's Moses, who's been a tremendous leader the whole time, and he fumbles the ball on the one-yard line. He dropped the ball. And because of sin, God said, you can't go into the promised land. And so we see a handoff. We see a succession where God takes the leadership from Moses and he passes the baton to the J-man Joshua. The book of Joshua takes over and Joshua is the military leader to take the nation of Israel into, come on somebody, the promised land. They get in the promised land. And God says, listen, when you get in there, you got to drive everybody out because if, if you let people stay there, they're going to corrupt you. And they're going to lead you into the idolatry where they worship false gods. And they do like we do, where we kind of got this halfway obedience. You know what halfway obedience is, don't you? Halfway obedience is disobedience. And they fight some fights. Some of you guys have heard about it, where the battle of Jericho goes down, where the walls come. The battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. I'm working hard up here. I got a lot of information to cover. That's where Jericho happens. It happens in the book of Joshua. 
And they drive out a lot of the inheritance, but not all the inheritance. And the, the people that used to live there, they allowed them to stay and they corrupt the nation of Israel. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me who you're running with and I'll show you where you're headed. And they allow people to stay that corrupt them as a nation. See, this is the story. God keeps giving chances. They keep rebelling. God keeps restoring. And you walk all the way through the book of Joshua and then you get to this next book, chronologically happening, and it's called the book of, anybody help me? Judges. Judges is a crazy book. It happens when you see this play out. The book of Judges is you have not the spin cycle, you have the sin cycle. You know the spin cycle on washing machines? We have a spin cycle. You'll hear our dishwasher. If you get close, it's pretty quiet. You can hear the... Next time you read the book of Judges, just let that sound effect I gave you just play through. What is the spin cycle? What is the sin cycle? You see it happen throughout the redemptive story. We keep rebelling against God, but you see it clearest in the book of Judges. What is the sin cycle? The sin cycle is rebellion, ruin, repentance, restoration. We thumb our nose at God. We feel the weight of disobedience. We cry out because we know we can't fix ourselves. And every time God is gracious. Y'all miss the good news. Every time God is gracious. How is God gracious? He raises up judges, not people in black robes that sit behind wooden benches with gavels. Judges in the book of Judges were military, political, and spiritual leaders. God would raise them up that every time they would disobey God, God would allow another nation to come in and subjugate them. God would raise up a judge that would push them back. This is where we get people like by the name of Gideon. Y'all remember the strong man? What was his name? Samson. Deborah, we're down with women leaders at Faith Church. You got a problem with women serving leadership, you're in the wrong church because God uses women too. Women were the first people at the tomb who shared the resurrection story. There was a woman by the name of Deborah who was a leader. And you get to the end of Judges and you see this. You see the cycle keep happening. And you get to the end of Judges and you get to this next part. It's the next six books in the Old Testament Anybody want to take a guess? First and second, Samuel, first and second. Oh, y'all reading your Bibles. First and second, Chronicles. A lot of content to cover, but it starts with first and second, Samuel. Anybody want to take a guess at why it's called first and second, Samuel? Because the main character's name is Joe. Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. God raised up this prophetic voice, but the nation of Israel, because they're consistently rebellious, a lot like you and I, they consistently wanted to do things their own way, a lot like you and I. They cried out and they said like, have you ever had, have you ever wondered what someone else had? When you're a little kid, you don't want what you have, you want what someone else has. I, I want one of those. We see the new, the shiniest, the best. I gotta have one of those. Well, every other nation had a king. And so the nation of Israel said, we want a king. And so God gave them a king this guy by the name of Samuel appointed a king, and the very first king was this tall, handsome, chiseled, abs, rock star leader by the name of Saul. Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel. He's a killer king. He's doing things right. And then Saul dropped the ball. I worked hard on that one. I'd appreciate just a little feedback. Saul <laughs> dropped the ball. 
Saul drops the ball. He turns his back on God, so God turns his back on us. Again, you get to choose your choices. God gets to choose the consequences. It's a free country. Anybody in this room, you can choose what to do anytime you want to do it. You get to choose your choices. God gets to choose the consequences. So he chooses to turn his back on God. So the baton of leadership of the crown gets passed from this guy, Saul, to this guy who is a killer king, the best of all time. His name is King David, who starts as a nobody, as a shepherd. Nobody's heard of him. Nobody believes in him. Nobody's respecting him, but it doesn't matter. If you have a heart after God, God will move you from the prison to the palace. He'll move you from the shepherd field. He'll move you to the throne because that's the God we serve. If you'll trust him, he will bless and honor you. Let's go. And so David ascends to the throne. He's an incredible military might. There's songs sung about him. Yes, Saul, you maybe killed your thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. It's the story of David. If you don't know this, David is the guy who wrote many of the Psalms, the book of Psalms or book of songs. He wrote, for example, Psalm 51. That's a reflection of repentance towards his heart. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Come on, when he visited Bed Bath and Beyond. See what I did there? I'm working it. I'm trying, people. And he sins and he sleeps with a woman that's not his, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. And even David, a godly king, drops the ball. Humanity continues to fumble in rebellion. The story of the Bible is the story of a good God who never gives up, that when we abandon him, he continues to pursue us. The funny thing we say in Christianese and Christian circles is, I found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. You weren't even looking for him. Jesus found you. In fact, he said it this way in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I ordained you. Come on, somebody. Is anybody thankful for God who doesn't give up? So David fumbles the ball and he passes off the baton to his son, a king by the name of Solomon. Solomon was this guy who was wise beyond his years. God inspired wisdom. In fact, he wrote some of the books you might be familiar in the Old Testament. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote the book of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. But one place that Solomon wasn't so smart was the woman game. He spent way too much time on Tinder, ended up not with one wife, not 10 wives. This cat wound up with 700 Headaches, I mean wise. <laughs> and he was such a glutton for punishment, he went out and got 300 concubines. Listen, if you got 1,000 wives, oh, I ain't stepping in that. I know you all like, what's he, what's he going to say? All the women are like, mm, and guys are like, I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> and you know what happens? Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Show me who you're hanging with, I'll show you where you're headed. Some of the women that he hooks up with, that he hangs out with, influences him because that is the essential of relationship. And some of his wives and concubines worshipped other gods, and it started to influence the heart of Solomon to stop serving the one true God and follow these other gods. And so the nation of Israel gets divided. You go from First and Second Samuel, it's a story of Samuel and Saul into David. First Kings tells the rest of the story of David. You get to the book of Second Kings and the nation of Israel gets divided. Remember I told you there were 12 tribes? It splits. There's a civil war in the nation of Israel. 10 tribes to the north became the nation of Israel. Two tribes of the south became the nation of Judah. 
And if you read the book of 2 Kings, it says things like this, that such and such a king ruled for X amount of years in Judah. Such and such a king ruled for X amount of years in the nation of Israel. And it goes back and forth, Israel and Judah. That's why, because they were divided, they each now had their own king. And then it just keeps getting worse because people just keep rebelling. And so God says, I got you a promised land. It's all yours. If you want my best, you got to do it my way. But if you refuse to do it my way, you can't have my best. And so because they continue to rebel against God, they continue to oppress the poor, they continue to stand against justice, they continue to uh, worship false gods, they continue to operate in idolatry, God ultimately kicks them out of the land. And you get to the end of 2 Kings and you read First and Second Chronicles and it retells their story that God serves them with an eviction notice. You got to go. God kicks the nation of Israel, out of the land he promised them. In fact, you can follow what I'm telling you. Historically, God allows this nation called the nation of the Assyrians to raise up. The nation of the Assyrians come in down from the north and they wipe out the nation of Israel. The 10 tribes, when I say wipe out, they've disappeared from history forever. And they kept pushing south till they got to the, to the nation of Judah. They pushed back. God was still for them because they were still for God. And the nation of Assyria couldn't do anything about it. 711 BC, they wiped out and took captive the northern kingdom. 586 BC, the next big uh, global power to come on went from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. 586 BC. I know this is a lot of y'all tracking with me. 586 BC, God allowed the Babylonians to sweep through Judah and take them captive. This is where you get some of the story. Y'all know the story of Daniel? Daniel, because Daniel refuses to dishonor God, and Daniel stays faithful to God. God can, he continues to trust God. And you know what happens when you trust God and you stay faithful to God? You know what happens when you don't bend to culture, but you trust Christ? God will always move you from the prison to the palace. God will always move you, come on, out of the low place into the high place. And God takes Daniel because what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar took the brightest and the best and the prettiest and put him in his throne room to serve him. And Daniel must have been a good-looking cat. Definitely had smarts. And Daniel gets elevated to a place of position and power. And he serves faithfully under Nebuchadnezzar. This is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happen. Y'all know that. Come on, Jesus is with us in the fire and won't let you get burned. The next big, uh, big uh, global power to come in uh, ultimately, the Assyrians get displaced by the Babylonians. The Babylonians get displaced by the Medo-Persians. The king at the time, his name was King Darius. King Darius gets put into place of power. Daniel still has a position of influence. And this is where there was a law passed. You can't worship any gods. The only God you can worship is the God and the idol image of King Darius. You know what Daniel says? I only worship one God. I don't care what happens. I'm not bending my knee to anybody but Christ. Well, the law said, if you don't bend your knee to Darius, you get thrown into the lion's den. Daniel said, throw me in because I got a God who's bigger than the lion. And you read the story found in the book of Daniel of Daniel getting thrown in the lion's den. He stayed there overnight and God shuts the mouths of the lion. I want you to know no matter what battle you're in, what fight you're in, what struggle you're in, God will shut the mouths of your enemy. He will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemy. If you'll trust him when it doesn't look like you should, God will always make a way where there seems to be no way. Come on, does anybody know that's true? Come on, I'm almost done. 
I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I got two more boards. God is faithful because he keeps getting his word. He keeps trying to pursue the people who are abandoning him. And God ultimately calls the nation of Israel to return home. Are you ready for this? I'm about to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. Because some of the people I've not mentioned in the Old Testament are the prophets. Everybody say the prophets, the prophets. You know what prophets do? Prophets prophesy. So make some prophets. If you don't prophesy, you're not a prophet. And one of the prophets, his name is Isaiah. There are major prophets and minor prophets. The only difference between the major and the minor is how much money they earn. I just lied. That's not true at all. The four major prophets, they're just called major because their books are really long. Then there's 12 or 16 minor prophets. The minor prophets, their books are really short. One of the major prophets, his name is Isaiah. I'll just give you an example. The most amazing prophecy made was Isaiah 53 where he prophesied our Moses coming. His name is Jesus to rescue us, not from Pharaoh, but from sin. But I'll just give you another one. One of the things that's most incredible is Isaiah wrote and prophesied 200 years before it happened. Before the nation of Israel was ever in bondage to Babylon, he prophesied a king by the name of Sirius would rise up, or Cyrus, and Cyrus would release the nation of Israel out of bondage. And Assyria, Babylonian, Medo-Persia, and then you find exactly that. Cyrus rose up and wrote a decree and freed the nation of Israel and said, you can go back to J-Town. Come on, you know what J-Town is, Jerusalem. And that's where you read a couple more books in the Old Testament where you get books like Ezra. Ezra was one of the first groups back and they went back and reestablished worship. We're gonna be a nation that worships God. And then the next book, Nehemiah. Come on, Nehemiah was the wall builder. Nehemiah went back to J-Town, Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls. But then you get all the way through that after the return. The nation of Israel, you get to the end of the book chronologically. The prophets have prophesied. The story is written, and you find Israel keeps on rebelling. They just refuse to do it God's way. And God keeps on pursuing. And the way the book, the Old Testament ends, is silence. When you turn the last page, of the Old Testament and flip to the first page of the New Testament, 400 years. The prophets stop prophesying. God stops speaking. Spiritually, it goes dark. You say, God, what happened? It's never because God gave up. It's because God said, I've already shown you what I'm gonna do. I've already told you all the way back in Genesis that there's going to be a seed that comes from Eve. There's going to be a family line that comes ultimately through Abraham, ultimately through the nation of Israel. I'm going to raise up a deliverer. Come on, he's coming next week. There's going to be somebody who rescues people. I don't care how rebellious they are, how broken they are, how much of a disaster life is. I'm going to send somebody who can heal the broken, who can set it captive, those who are bound up. I'm going to, I'm going to raise somebody up who can heal people and restore people. His name is Jesus. He's coming. Come on. Next week, week two. And so when you read the Bible, how do 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, written by in three different languages, how does it all tie together? The red thread of redemption. It's God's story. Keep running, he'll keep pursuing you. Keep turning your back, he'll keep chasing you. That there is mercy and there is grace and a God. He expects you to turn. He expects you to repent. And even when he's silent, he's still spoken. Even when it feels like he's given up, he still said something to you. 
And so the Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him. If you're paying attention, every book you look at is a highlight of who Jesus is and what he came to do in his promise in my life and yours. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's our fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. In Judges, he's our lawgiver. In Ruth, our kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, we find he's sovereign. In Ezra, he's a true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the wall builder of broken lives. Come on, in Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, he's our timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, he's wisdom's cry. In Ecclesiastes, he's our time and our season. In the Song of Solomon, he's our lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Come on, in Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he's the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, he's a stranger in the fire. Come on, in Hosea, he's forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that always carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's our great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, the strength in our shield. In Habakkuk, in Zephaniah, he is pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores our lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. Come on, in the last book of the Bible. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who is coming with healing in his wings. Come on, is there anybody thankful that we serve a God who's told his story and we get to be a part of it? Come on, let's jump to our feet.